Most people in technology agree that cyber threats will be one of the biggest dangers we face in the coming years. In our increasingly connected world, we're more vulnerable than ever before, and the threat of one bad actor taking out an entire power grid or critical network system is real. Retired Army Major General John Davis knows this better than most. While leading a task force responsible for directing the operations and defense of the DoD networks, the U.S. was hit with a cyber attack that infected a number of critical networks. John had to lead the charge against the malicious code, and he believes the event was a key factor in the creation of U.S. Cyber Command, which John served as a director of. Today, John is the chief security officer for the federal sector of Palo Alto Networks, and he spends his time telling the story of that attack to illustrate the need for enhanced cybersecurity everywhere. On this episode of IT Visionaries, John discusses how he dealt with the attack, the ways cybersecurity has changed, and why the way forward is with a prevention mindset. Enjoy this conversation. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce. Did you know that Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have on the other line, John, what's going on? Hey, Ian. It's a great day to do an interview like this. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. So we met uh, about two years ago, a little over two years ago, when uh, I put on an Investing in Ethics Summit, and it was hosted by Palo Alto Networks. Um, we have a connection because we we both went to West Point, and uh, and the former CEO of Palo Alto Networks also went to West Point. So uh, we have a little bit of of shared history, and you have a uh, a passion for for leadership and everything. Um, I'm curious, you know, how's the world treating you since? Great. I, uh, I've been with Palo Alto Networks almost 40 years uh, after 35 years in the military. And uh, based on what I was doing when I left the Pentagon as the senior military cyber advisor, my role at Palo Alto Networks is actually very similar to, to what I was doing in the, in the Pentagon role. And that's uh, building and maintaining trusted advisory relationships with leaders of, of different organizations in order to uh, achieve common interest goals when it came to uh, cybersecurity and the entire cyber environment. And Palo Alto Networks has over 60,000 enterprise customers, you know, maintaining trust in, in this digital age. I- I'm curious before we dive in, what would you say, like, what does the security landscape, uh, you know, in the digital world look like in 2019? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a pretty astonishing thing, if you ask me. Um, so the digital age, the, some people have called this the fourth industrial revolution. And I think that it's because the digital environment brings us, all of us, uh, promise and opportunity of all shapes and sizes. And this movement, this direction, there's no stopping it. There's no going back. It's, it's on a path uh, with, with, with no U-turns. And as we are all increasingly connecting nearly everyone and everything in the digital environment, we're increasingly dependent on it for everything that we do, including our personal and public safety, our economic competitiveness, Uh, even our national and and international security. Uh, But as a result of this path that we're on, we're also increasingly vulnerable. And as we connect everyone and everything, the risks aren't just that that the scale is going to increase. Uh, I think the risks uh, is that the the impact of, of the vulnerabilities will become more dangerous. I mean, just think of it. We are connecting life sustaining devices public transportation systems, uh, energy, electric grids. We're connecting all of this stuff. And so when there's a security incident in the near term and into the future, I think it's no longer uh, just about the loss of, you know, personal or sensitive information or, or maybe not being able to get to some IT system like a banking website because it's got a distributed denial of service. 
I mean, that's as bad as that is, and it's bad, that's just an inconvenience. Yeah. Really. Uh, now, what we're doing by connecting all of these things, uh, national security, economic viability, and even public safety could be put at risk. And I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that in the future, as a result of cyber insecurity, uh, people could lose their lives. I mean, I think that that is a possibility and something I really worry about. Uh, my sense in looking around at all the organizations, both public and private sector, that I advise and assist, the recognition of this, I think it's growing uh, in, in leaders in both the public and private sector, that this realization that this is going to be our new reality. But I think it's very uneven. Uh, the, the realization is uneven. It's more mature in some areas and it's much less mature in other areas. Uh, and part of my job is to educate people, educate leadership on why this is, this is so important to consider, you know, both sides of the equation, the opportunity and promise alongside the, the, the vulnerabilities, the risks and, and the threats. Until people realize a personal impact in a meaningful way, something very serious, uh, then I think the average consumer is, uh, they, they know cyber is something spooky and mysterious, but I think the, the public in general is uh, behind in its understanding uh, as opposed to leadership for both public and private sector organizations. Yeah, I, it's so interesting that you had such a long career in the military and can apply a lot of the principles of that to cybersecurity. I mean, I think for me, as someone who talks to a lot of, you know, cybersecurity leaders and as someone who, you know, was was in the army and at West Point for a decade, I, I really feel the same way where um, there's just a lot of kind of general spookiness. Um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people are scared of the unknown. Um, how much do you think of like the unknown like should become known? How much of, uh, of the unknown can be more transparent or clarified so that people like understand the threat levels and how this all fits into their lives? Well, I think most of it can be known. Uh, like I said, that I consider that part of my job when it comes to leadership in public and private sector. Um, and when I get the opportunity to do it and for, for general public forums, uh, I try to do that as well. But you have to you can't speak in technical terms. You have to put it in meaningful terms to people who don't may not have a technical background. And so I think it's very possible to explain, you know, based on my military background, most of it was in airborne ranger infantry assignments and special operations organizations, but the last decade was in cyber assignments. And so as a result of that, one of the things that I uh, have a deep appreciation for is understanding how cyber threats operate. And I think that you have to be able to explain that to people in a meaningful way, you know, how they actually operate in order for people to understand uh, what to do in order to prevent most of what we're seeing happen around the world today. And I, I do believe the vast majority of it is totally preventable. If you do, if you do some simple things right, and if you leverage some innovation that's occurred in, in the course of the last decade as well. So I think this, as I mentioned, this is going to become increasingly important for all of us to understand the, the threats and the risks associated with, with not preventing what's going on. When you wait too, too, when you're too late, when you've done something wrong, like clicked on the wrong link and allowed some threat organization or actor to come in and encrypt your files for ransom. Now you're playing catch up. Now you got to figure out what you're going to do to clean up the mess. I think a, a, the prevention mindset helps you get ahead of that problem. In order to understand how to prevent, I think that goes back to a deeper understanding of what uh, cyber threats are actually doing and how they're doing it. So it gives you a chance uh, in order to, to, implement a preventative mindset. Do you think that, like how much responsibility is on the organization versus the individual? 
Well, that's, I mean, I guess it would depend on the type of organization and what the business model is and what the role of the people in the organization is. I can tell you just, I'll use the defense department as an example. So everybody's got a role to play and there are, there are basic standards and discipline that everybody should be adhering to in order to reduce the likelihood that there's going to be a problem. But that's not going to keep everything out. A, a determined threat, a nation state threat, for example, that has the means uh, will figure out a way to get in. So now your challenge is it's not everybody uh, as a user of that environment. It's really now in, it involves the you know, the cybersecurity related organizations in that organization to ensure that even if something gets in, it ends up being stopped before it's a successful attack. And by that, I mean, you know, all threat actors, they use this process to attack. Even, it doesn't matter if you're nation state or criminal organization or a hacker or a terrorist, espionage, military, it doesn't matter. The same process is used and generally, uh, not, not always in this sequence, but generally in this sequence. There's reconnaissance, probing, then there's a development of a delivery mechanism to get to a target or a victim. Uh, then there's the weaponization process. Then there's exploitation of some type of a vulnerability in the target environment. And that can be a human vulnerability, as in the case of spear phishing. Then there's the installation of malicious code. Then there has to be the establishment of a control channel, because usually wherever a threat enters into a network environment is not where they need to be in order to successfully do whatever they're, you know, steal sensitive information, crypt files for ransom, or destroy, deny, degrade, deceive if you're a military organization, expose embarrassing information if you're just a, an activist. But that last step, you got to go through all of these other things. And that control channel leads to, you know, uh, escalating privileged access, and then usually there's lateral movement. So once you establish the control channel, you move to that part of the network that you need to be in in order to accomplish what I call the successful attack, the end goal, regardless of what type of threat actor you are. Well, that process takes time. And so when we did it uh, at Cyber Command, it might take months if you want to be stealthy. Uh, nowadays, uh, I think, you know, threats are using advanced capabilities, automation, machine learning, advanced tool and file sharing. The threats are getting better. They're getting faster uh, by leveraging the, this, these new innovative techniques. But still, it takes time. And so uh, once a, a threat actor gets through the basics, which I think keeps nearly everything out, about 80 to 90 percent of everything out, if they do get in, now your challenge is to see and stop them at one of those steps along the path towards a successful attack. And the cybersecurity teams have to be able to do that. They have to be able to see, have visibility, and stop, have appropriate security controls in that enterprise environment. Now, you know, what, what happens here? If you're able to do what I just said, now anybody who's attacking has got to be right at every step along the way in order to be successful. And the defender only has to see and stop them at one point along that path in order to be successful at preventing them from accomplishing their objective. So that changes the whole dynamic. And it actually gives, you know, it gives organizations the, a real ability to, you know, to go after that remaining 10 to 20 percent of sophisticated attack sequences that basic, you know, standards, discipline, hygiene by every user in the organization uh, can keep out if they just do those things right. And I'm, I'm talking about being suspicious of, of emails, you know, like you would be suspicious of anybody who shows up at your front door before you let them in. Yeah, treat, totally. Treat your screen the same way. Uh, updating uh, patches, um, making sure you have strong passwords, making sure you're using multi-factor authentication. There's a There are a lot of things that every single person, uh, regardless of whether you're in a military organization or in a business or just at home, a lot of things that everybody can do just to really prevent most of most of everything that we're seeing. Yeah. 
I'm curious, who are the folks that you're talking to in these organizations? Are you talking to CEOs, CIOs, CISOs, CTOs? Like what, what are those types of folks? And then on the federal side, um, what are the types of, of stakeholders that you see there? Yeah, all of the above. I, I call it C-suite. So normally it's the CIO, CISO crowd, but it also includes CFOs, CEOs, it also includes uh, people in the, you know, in the, in the SOC, SOC analysts. Yeah. Um, in the military, they may not have those exact same titles, but they basically have the leaders in, in the same type of role that you would find in, in the businesses. So commanders and, you know, operations officers and the cybersecurity teams, uh, th- those are the types of people that I talk with. So, and when you're talking to you know, CIOs or CISOs, what are their fears? What are some of the things that, that keep them up at night that they're worried about as, you know, the digital age kind of continues to evolve and get more complex? There's a long list that, uh, that they're worried about, especially the CISOs and the CIOs. Um, it's a pretty stressful job being a CISO. Some of the common things that I hear are that, you know, fighting for budget in order to be able to get the resources that you need to put the people, the amount of people you need with the right skill sets, the right technology in place, and having the right procedures and processes for an organization. Uh, a lot of them uh, spend a lot of their time uh, working on that, trying, trying to ensure that, you know, basic people processes and technology enable them to be successful. Uh, some of them worry about, you know, the worst case situation and, and how, to, how to measure risk. Uh, increasingly, uh, we're finding that boards, when they're making decisions about, you know, giving you resources, they don't want to hear the techno speak about cyber threats. And they want you to put this into the language of risk management, just like a board manages every other kind of risk. They are expecting uh, CISOs and CISOs and CIOs to talk to them in plain English about how, you know, what is the actual risk? What level of risk are we willing to accept? Give me options. I don't want an on or off type of thing. I want options of levels of risk, just like I make decisions on everything else. And then how do I know, you know, what are the, uh, the metrics and the measurements? How do I know that what we're doing is resulting in, you know, a successful outcome? Uh, being able to answer those questions and, and do everything that I just said, that's it's not exactly easy to do for a, a CSO, a CIO, or a CISO these days. So uh, I think a lot of them are uh, on this journey to figure out how to do that in meaningful ways so that they can explain things uh, rationally to board members and get the resources that they need to be successful. Is there any things that you know, the, we, we talk a lot about the modern CIO and like what this means right now. And in this kind of moment in time where every CIO has different roles and responsibilities, um, IT has fundamentally changed uh, whether or not you own security or not, whether you own product development or not, whether or not you spend half of your time with customers. I'm curious, like, how do you see security in the organization's um, that you talk to? Is it something that is, you know, squarely falls under, you know, a singular person? Is it something that, uh, you know, the CISO is reporting up to the CIO? Obviously, you know, each organization is different, but I'm curious if there's any trends that you've seen over the last four years that have changed uh, with regards to how companies organize themselves around cybersecurity. Sure, Ian. Yeah, I, I see a lot of change and I see a lot of different models. Uh, I think it's probably still the most usual model is a CISO reporting up to a CIO, but I've seen where the, you know, the information security role falls under the chief financial officer, the chief risk officer, yeah. in some cases directly under the CEO. It all depends, I think, on, well, it depends on a lot of things, including personalities. Uh, for a long time, in my view, at least in my experience in the military, this idea of, you know, operate the networks versus defend the networks were at polar opposites. One was about delivering capability 
The other one was about managing risk. And when one was pulling one way, the other one was, you know, trying to resist and, and vice versa. In the military, that became, you know, over time, the security of networks was the little brother underneath the big sister of operate networks. Yeah. Traditionally, security worked for the people whose job it was to make things happen, to connect things, make things happen, get the job done. And security was an afterthought. It was bolted on after as a common uh, staying. That's changing because, you know, some of the things that we've already talked about, the, the risk is, is different. The, the risk of serious consequences now, I would even say in some cases existential. It's going to get existential. The United States government, the intelligence community of the United States government has named cyber as the number one threat of the future over all other threats. So now, I think that's caused a relook at, well, how, how do we balance these better? Because we need both, obviously, uh, but you need a better balance and you need to bake in security rather than bolt it on afterwards. Two things. One is the big trend in, the, in industry right now is something called DevOps. You know, the development of capabilities and the operation of them melded together so that it's a continuous cycle it's not, you know, go through this long development process and get a, you know, a final product uh, after a longer period of time and then put it to use and then start looking again at the future. Now it's, you know, much shorter cycles. So you get something that's good enough to move out, you move out and operate it and you figure out what's wrong and you go through that development cycle and it's a much more agile and dynamic process than it used to be. The big thing now is where does security fall in that? And there's this thing called DevSecOps. So making the security function right in there along with the development of the capabilities as well as the operations of them. And that's, what, that's what's happening in industry. That's the way industry is looking to find the common ground between the requirements of all three elements and find a better balance in a much more dynamic and agile way than we've previously done. If you look at, uh, my second point was about the military example of this. And, you know, back in 2008, we had a very serious incident. I was a one star. I was the leader of a joint task force that had the responsibility to direct the operations and defense of all of DOD's networks. Yeah. Uh, very difficult. Some would say, I would say impossible job. And about a month into that assignment, or maybe a little more, I get a phone call from a friend at the National Security Agency. This is no longer classified, by the way. This is now unclassified, but calls me, as I recall, on a weekend and says, you need to get in on a secure line because we got a problem. I knew this was going to be the start of a very bad weekend. Yeah, that's always a bad start of a weekend. <laughs> yeah, we had, a, we had malicious code in some of our most serious networks, including in combat zones. So this started a process. It's called Operation Buckshot Yankee. Uh, were, were you in in 2008? Yes. Well, I was, uh, I was uh, a junior at West Point. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I, was, I put a cot up in my office and slept out of it for Lord only knows how long. And we had daily video teleconferences with the very senior leadership of the military explaining where we were in the process of identifying this infection, uh, getting it under control, and making sure that nothing from our sensitive networks got outside of those closed networks into back to the Internet. And uh, it was a very long and traumatic process. But as a result of that, it was a near catastrophe for the military. And in my view, that was the event that, it was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back in the decision yeah. to create U.S. Cyber Command. Yeah. So instead, and so that was 2008. The decision was made to stand up Cyber Command in 2009, and in 2010, in, in May of 2010, I got to be the very first director of current operations at U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, so now my responsibility was to direct the operations, defense, and defense of all DoD's networks as well as directing offensive operations when authorized. So what happened here was as a result of a near catastrophe, senior leadership realized the consequence of the failed organizational structure and model that we had in 2008 
and made the decision to bring together the people who operate the network, the people who defend the network, the intelligence that supports them, as well as the ability to provide cyber capabilities uh, to integrate offensively along with other, every other military capability, air, maritime, uh, land capabilities. That was a pretty big life-altering example to me of what you're talking about, this you know, realization that we better get our act together uh, because you know, what happened was we put the integrity of our classified networks at risk which would have caused severe national security consequences. So, you know, that's a military example of, of what I think I see happening, as I mentioned, in a very uneven way, unfortunately. But the same type of things that are happening out in industry where, you know, CEOs are, they realize they can be fired for these large breaches. And same thing for CISOs and, and CIOs and CSOs. So that's changed. This is serious business now, and it's part of the reason why I, I continue to do this because I feel like it's it's a mission for me. It's it's a mission. Yeah, and I and I want to get into some of the uh, the cyber command piece of this because I think that that response is you know truly creating a best in class organization, which is hard to do from the ground up. Um, but but back to the story, and thank you for sharing that. I, I think you're exactly right. It does speak to the moment in time of every organization when, you know, it's the classic adage. Uh, there's only two types of companies, those that have been hacked and those that don't know they've been hacked. And I think that, you know, I think that there's, there's truth in jest there because I think that whatever, you know, whether or not you knew your vulnerabilities, and this was an organization where, you know, I had a secret computer, I had... I, I, I had four computers on my desk in Afghanistan, um, you know, all with, with varying levels. This was an organization that, you know, I would say at the time, we probably felt like we were the most secure. And to have that not be the case, I, I think it's the same way that a lot of CEOs, whether it's, you know, we saw from the Sony hacks or we've seen, uh, you know, different sort of things over the past few years, the feeling of security and then when that stuff ends up being catastrophic. Um, now, luckily, you were able to get in front of it. And I'm curious, like, what were some of those lessons that you take with you that when you go to talk about change management, uh, when you go talk to, to CEOs and senior leaders at, at these, you know, Fortune 500, Global 2000 companies uh, that you bring with you and say, hey, listen, this is what I walked into. I've sat in your in your seat and you really need to take this seriously. Yeah, uh, well, I usually tell them uh, I usually tell them that story I just told you for one thing because they all love to hear, you know, real world uh, war stories, and that's usually a pretty good one to get everybody's attention. Um, but then I try to I guess I would uh, I would bucket things in terms of best practices. I would bucket them in, in four categories. Uh, one, the first one, basics matter. You know, going back to this idea of every person's responsibility, uh, strong passwords and multi-factor authentication and patching, keeping, you know, your stuff updated, uh, your apps updated, being suspicious, always being suspicious of what's coming in your, you know, virtual front door there. Uh, in the case of the Operation Bugshot Yankee, we did that to ourselves. You know, that was us infecting our own networks and, and systems with thumb drives, moving between unclassified and classified systems, moving malware between those two and, and letting it get into uh, classified networks. In my experience, last decade worth of uh, cyber experience in the military, people, human mistakes or human malice uh, were some of the worst things that we had to deal with, like Buckshot Yankee and the thumb drives or like insider threats, like WikiLeaks and, and the Snowden disclosures. So basics matter. And in my view, and I really believe this, if you design a security regime around the expectations that people will do everything right, you'll fail. But if you get people to understand the basics, I think you can prevent 80 to 90% of what we're seeing happening around the world today. You know, once you do that, the threat's going to advance. It's going to get more sophisticated. But I think that would put a pretty big dent in, in what we're seeing. Uh, the second piece, the second bucket would be mindset. 
And it gets back to this idea of prevention. I think that for the longest time, we've lived in a model of detect and respond after the fact. You know, you'll hear organizations say, some in the cybersecurity industry say, you know, it's not a matter of if, but when. There's no way to keep everything out. You just have to assume breach. Well, I think there is a way to keep a lot of it out. But the mindset that, you know, you focus on prevention so that you reduce the amount of work that your security teams have to do when something does get in, now you're into detection and response uh, before it's a successful attack, before the, the end goal of that process I talked about occurs. And I think if you focus on that, uh, that's one of the ways, that mindset is one of the ways that you get after that 10 to 20% that the basics are not going to stop. Another way that you get after that 10 to 20% is the third bucket. And that's what I would say, you know, we've been fighting machines with humans in cybersecurity. We've been fighting software with human, you know, manual actions. Uh, the threat has gotten very good at leveraging automation and, and software-based advanced analytics. Um, and we need to, as a, as a community of defenders, uh, we need to leverage that too. We need to fight software with software. We need to fight machines with machines. And there's a lot of innovation that is occurring now in the cybersecurity industry that makes that possible. This is not a futuristic concept. This is available now. Leveraging software-based advanced analytics like machine learning, like big data analytics, like AI. Uh, AI, I think, for me, is a, a little bit of a more futuristic concept. I mean, we're, we're going to get there. Pieces of it are in place. But what's really in place today is machine learning. Machine learning is basically, well, there's two kinds. There's one is you, you tell the algorithms what to look for, and they do it. The other is if you've got enough of the right kind of data, then you don't even have to tell it what to look for. It learns on its own. But you have to have really tremendous volumes of data from all of the different elements of, a, of an enterprise environment, you know, on-premises, data centers, physical, virtual, cloud of all types, SaaS, endpoints, even IoT devices. You have to have the right data from all of that in order to be able to leverage uh, unsupervised or unstructured machine learning where the, the algorithms will, will figure out and determine good and bad on their own with a very high degree of accuracy. So this is a way to leverage, you know, automation and software-based advanced analytics to see and stop a threat once it's penetrated, once it's in your environment, to see and stop it before it gets to the end of that, you know, Lockheed Martin calls it the kill chain, the end of that attack process. So, and then the fourth bucket, I would say, gets back to, you really have to understand how threats operate. You know, this is, this is the kill chain. This is the attack process. And I'll go back to my experience in when, when that terrible incident occurred during Operation Buckshot Yankee in 2008, and we brought together the offense, the defense, the operations of the network, and the intelligence. Now we were able to do a much better job of the offense informing the defense and vice versa. So we could really, as defenders, we could really understand this attack process and, and the different types of techniques that could be used to move along that chain of events to end up with a successful attack and create an advantage for the defender, really. And then, of course, the, the defenders could uh, help inform the attackers. And when we were authorized to do certain things, we would, that would make them even more effective and, and better by understanding how to how to get around certain defenses. But I will say one other thing. Even, even with all those four buckets that I just mentioned, it used to be about a decade ago, maybe a little bit more, the enterprise envir environment was fairly, uh, was fairly simple. You had perimeter, you had data center, you had device, and pretty clear boundaries between them. And everything were usually, most things were physical, they were uh, fixed, and they were on-prem. That makes it pretty easy to do what I just described with those four things. What's happened over that last decade or so is everything's moving from 
physical to virtual. Everything's moving from fixed to mobile and even, you know, Internet of Things, you know, connecting operational devices to, to the network. Uh, everything's moved off of the prem or it's, it's rapidly moving from on-prem to cloud, uh, public cloud, private cloud, hybrid cloud, multi-cloud, and even, you know, SaaS, software as a, as a service uh, in the cloud. So, and the perimeter has all but disappeared. So, you know, now rather than, you know, boundaries between the perimeter data centers and, and devices or users, uh, now it's really about the boundary or, or defending around users, applications, content, and the devices that they're done on, and making sure that only authorized users are allowed to do authorized functions using authorized applications with authorized content from authorized devices, and anything else is automatically stopped, you know, by default, unless, unless you create an, an exception. You know, so I guess that there's a, maybe not a fifth bucket, but you have to kind of wrap this, this thing in an overall context of consistent and continuous visibility and security controls across all those pieces of the environment. If it's not the same, if it's not consistent security and visibility, then you're looking through a soda straw at different parts of your enterprise environment, and you're trying to piece all that together, and that usually overwhelms the security teams that are trying to figure out what's going on in their environment. Uh, if you take the approach of consistent and continuous visibility and security controls across all those different parts of a very complex environment these days, then you're able to uh, more consistently use those buckets that I just talked about, especially the, the second one, third one, and the fourth one. So it gives you the opportunity to, to catch a a breach before before it's successful, and that's best case. Worst case, you're able to limit the impact of a breach, uh, even if it begins to you know uh, be successful. Yeah, you know it's funny. I hearing the story of of Buckshot Yankee reminds me of all of the you know user centric rules that we put in place that kind of rolled down to my level. I remember it was a, for any officer, it was a GOMAR, general officer letter reprimand for using, for using a thumb drive. Like automatically you had, you know, which essentially at that point in time was like a career render. Um, when we were in Afghanistan, we saw people, you know, a handful of people and I had to process that stuff, uh, you know, put their phone into, uh, you know, into a zipper computer, uh, into the USB drive, like all sorts of stuff like that. And I remember watching with delight as the, uh, as the S6, they had a blowtorch in our talk and they would blowtorch the person's phone in front of them. Mm -hmm. But, but I, I think it's emblematic in this kind of idea that, I mean, I couldn't imagine what people, this was like the very, very first days of, of those devices being able to be used in kind of that way. There was no, uh, you know, bring your own device to work. There was no, you know, work being done on personal devices other than kind of, you know, text messaging here and there. I would imagine the military today is completely different uh, with how many devices are being used. And I would say that like our technology stack back then when I got out, um, you know, in 2013 was extremely limited compared to what I've heard, you know, it is today. I'm curious, like, what's the state of, of the military's technology infrastructure now? Well, I, I think that ever since 2008, the military has been on this journey and has taken this very seriously, has invested tremendous amounts of resources, has trained a cyber mission force to do, and by the way, the cyber mission force, 133 teams, only 33 of those are offensive. The others, the, all the rest are either strategic defense, tactical defense, or support teams. So, you know, Cyber Command was created out of a defensive purpose. Most people think it was to go attack things. It, it really, that was a part of it, but it's the smallest part of it. So, I think the military, because of this, you know, this whole evolution that started out of a near catastrophe has really changed the organizational structure, the, the training, the skill set, the capability development, and taken all this very seriously. And, I, and as a result of that, I think the military is in pretty good shape. I mean, are there, are there places where it could be better? Sure. 
we are, you know, the military is, is a client of ours and, and we, uh, or has clients that, that we serve. And of course we try to help them do that. But, um, but there's this, this notion, I think, and this, I won't just say this is the military. I think a lot of organizations have this same mindset and this is a, a legacy mindset. And I think this is holding some of us back. It's the mindset that I've got to have a tool for every single thing, every single you know, every single part of that attack process, there's probably hundreds of different companies that build tools for to do that one little thing in that enterprise environment, you know, antivirus or, or sandboxing or, you know, there's, there's thousands of examples. You go to the RSA convention every year in San Francisco and you see, you know, I forget how many thousands of, of vendors there are out there, but they're yeah, all building individual tools. It's over 2000. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what happens as a result of that, when you got a legacy mindset that says, well, I got to have one of everything and I can't put all my eggs in one basket, you end up overwhelming the security teams that you have because they got to figure out how to make all this stuff work together. And that's another one of those things, getting back to an earlier question that I hear from a lot of, you know, security uh, executives is, they're in, in security tool uh, overload. To make them all work together, it, it's just overwhelming. And so some organizations, the military is one that has hundreds, hundreds of tools, individual tools. And for every tool they've got in their environment, it takes a person to test it. It takes a person to operate it. It takes a person to read the information that comes off of it. And it's just an ever-increasing need for people and there's a better way to do this. You know, organizations like mine, we see this as the trend that's happening now. It's really good cybersecurity organizations figure out how to do all that for you so that you come in with an integrated platform, an integrated suite of products that are all designed from the beginning to connect with and inform and work with one another rather than relying on the security team to go figure out how to do all that. Orchestration was the term I just, for some reason, had a block against. But that's called orchestration and, and security lingo. And it is an extremely complex, complex undertaking. And it just, it wears out security organizations. So I tell, you know, people when I go around, I say, you know, this legacy mindset is like, you know, if cybersecurity were like, buying an automobile, this would be like you sending your security teams out to a hundred different auto parts stores, buying a bunch of parts and bringing them back to your organization and trying to figure out how to build a car. That's exactly what it's like. I love that. So cybersecurity organizations of the future, and this is happening now, uh, need to become more like dealerships. And maybe you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Maybe you decide you need a you know, you need a high-end model for some type of, you know, make and model and you need another one and maybe you have two or three, but not hundreds. And so I think, um, to me, this is, this is a trend of the future. This is a way to simplify all of that confusion, all of that complexity that exists in most organizations today. And complexity is your number one enemy. Because if, if you have so much complexity and you're looking through soda straws at different parts of your enterprise environment, you're not going to see and stop threats before they're successful. That's why you know, it gets back to that consistent and continuous uh, visibility and security controls across the whole set of complex uh, portions of your environment. Okay, it reminds me of you know, General McChrystal had this notion in, I think he started it in Iraq, but, but uh, migrated it to both Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was called, you know, the intelligence systems, all these different intelligence systems would be responsible for one specific part of, you know, detecting and, and determining, you know, an, an insurgency or, or terrorist organization. But they would, they would fumble the handoff between from one to the other, from, you know, signals intelligence to human intelligence. And it was just chaotic. And you, he was looking through soda straws at different parts of a very serious threat environment. And he called for what he called the, the unblinking eye. So that was the consistent and continuous melding, integration of all these capabilities to focus in an area 
and figure out the terrorist network associated with that in order to conduct operations. Security officials in today's organizations need that unblinking eye approach to cyber threats. I love that. Uh, and I love that car analogy. That's great. All right, let's get in the lightning round. Thanks to our friends at Lightning Platform by Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash employee experience to learn more about employee experience on the world's number one CRM. Lightning round questions, fast and easy. John, are you ready? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> number one, what app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? Oh, geez. I would have to say, I don't know if it's the most fun, but it's, it's a very useful one. It does uh, automatic capture a business card, so I don't have to keep stacks of cards. It scans it in and automatically populates a database that uh, a catalog of everybody that I meet and get a business card from. That's a good one. What about a favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Oh, wow. Favorite book. Uh, I read a fascinating book uh, by Max Tegmark, uh, Professor Tegmark at MIT. It's called Life 3.0. It's a look at the far future and where we're all headed as a human race, well, as a human slash hybrid race, because if you look, you know, life 1.0 was essentially the single cell organism. We're life 2.0 and life 3.0 is going to be some version of, you know, turning into uh, hybrid machines because it's the only way we're going to survive an exploding sun in the end. So if, if the human race is to survive, this is a path that we need to be on and brings up all kinds of questions about morality and, and the future. But I would recommend it's fascinating reading. That is fascinating. What about, um, why did you get into technology in the first place? Were you interested as, as a kid? How did that come about? <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to be a, a soldier. Uh, my version of technology was a Texas instrument calculator hanging off of my hip. Uh, we didn't have computers. I took computer science then at West Point and it was Fortran and Cobalt. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Uh, and I, I hated it. Most of my career was, like I mentioned, in Airborne Ranger and Special Ops assignments. But then I got involved in information warfare in the mid-90s to late 90s. The Army came out with a, an information officer career field. I became one of the first. I found it fascinating. I was the information warfare chief for JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, and then later on for U.S. Special Operations Command, SOCOM. And, uh, and cyber, we didn't even call it cyber back then. We called it computer network operations. It was a part of information warfare. And so that's what got me into, into the last decade of my career in cyber-related assignments was this evolution from doing information warfare and special operations in that community uh, back uh, into the, you know, what developed as the cyber community for the military. What about, what do you do for fun? <laughs> well, right now I'm waiting on back surgery, so not much. <laughs> oh, no. But that's I, a I, I ruptured a disc, but that's a long story. Uh, I like to work out. I like to run. I still keep up a good uh, workout regimen in terms of uh, weightlifting and running. I've had to put that on hold uh, for the past couple of weeks. I love reading. Uh, I like to play golf when, when my back's not bad. Uh, but most of all, I think, you know, besides spending time with my family, which I really, really enjoy, you, you know, the sacrifice that you and your family go through when you're in the military. So after I've retired, I've had a chance to, uh, you know, spend more quality time uh, with my family and, and, and go on some trips. And, and that's been really nice. What's your best advice for a first time CIO or CISO? I would go back to those four buckets I talked about, but, um, but I guess if, if I had to put it into one sentence, it would be learn to speak the language of business and risk management. And that'll be a key to success for you rather than the, the language of technology. That's, you have to know it. I'm not belittling that. And you definitely have to, you know, you have to have your, your skill set there, but in getting what you need from the people who make decisions about money, uh, you need to speak the language of business. And, and that would be my number one advice. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? <laughs> That's a tough one. Uh, I get asked a lot of questions. Uh, 
Let's see. Do I wish I was asked? Let me think about that one. Let me come back to that one. Yeah, we'll I'll, do. I'll mull it over while you're asking the rest. That's it. That's all. That's all we got. What about um, uh, anything? I, I guess we should do like what's what's the future for for Palo Alto Networks? What are you excited about going forward? Uh, I'm very excited. I like I said, I consider this a calling, a mission. I think that it's something that is of great importance to the to the world. And so I believe I believe in what I'm doing. I believe that the culture and values of the company that I've, I've joined are top of the line. That makes it uh, very, very exciting to go to work every day. It makes you look forward to doing what you're doing. And I get to help people, you know. I get to help people uh, and organizations of, of all types. So if every day is safer than the day before, and if I've had any part in making that from a cybersecurity perspective, that's a good day for me. I love and it. I got an answer for you to the question okay, yeah. I never get asked. Yeah, let's do it. How do I stay this good looking at my age? <laughs> what's your What's your two mile time about these days? Do you think you can still get a three hundred on the PT test? That's my question. Uh, I don't. I no. I don't think I get a three hundred. I I I never didn't get a three hundred in my during my career. But I'm probably at about a. 15 minute to mile right now. And that's, I don't think that would get me 300. But, but 15 minute, that should be, that should be max. I think, I don't know. What, what was your fastest time? I think my fastest time was right around 11. Not uh, quick guy, John, this has been awesome. We really appreciate it. We got to have you back. There's a million more stories. Uh, you know, our listeners would love to hear. Um, so excited to hear about the work at Palo Alto networks and, uh, and just thanks for, thanks for sharing. Thanks a lot, Ian. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com employee experience. IT Visionaries is created by our team at mission.org. 